I don't know about you guys. Um, I've been feeling kind of under the weather lately. I've had some allergies. And I guess more importantly, um, this past week, I helped uh, teach some fourth and fifth grade boys. And so I'm, I'm like really wiped out. Uh, I could use some prayer right now. So I just want to open our time in prayer this morning. Um, so let's pray. Father, we, we love you. And we come to you now asking that you would shape us by your word. Father, we ask that you would, um, you would teach us something about who you are and how you would have us live uh, in relationship to you as your people. Father, I, I confess um, that I need you right now. Uh, Lord, I, I desperately rely on you just as everyone in this room desperately relies on you uh, to hear a word from you. Father, so I, I pray that you would send your spirit now uh, to show us your truth, to, to move our affections, to um, conform our hearts and our minds and our lives to the image of Christ Jesus, your son. Father, when, when you speak, uh, worlds appear, worlds come into being, and so we ask that you now speak to us. Um, Father, do in our hearts what only you can do. Not me, not this worship team, but, but you. Father, we ask that, um, that you would do in work uh, where you take all the glory. Father, we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So, why do we crave stories? That's the question. Why do we crave stories? Maybe you, um, maybe you caught it last week. Last week, uh, Game of Thrones premiered its seventh season. By the way, this is not an endorsement of Game of Thrones. This is just an illustration. Uh, so it premiered its, its seventh season. And as you might imagine, the viewership numbers were record-breaking. There was an estimated 16.1 million viewers who... Who, um, who watched the premiere. And according to my source, to my Google source, um, there was around 90 million uh, viewers who watched the show illegally. So my, parent, um, my sister and her husband were one of, one of those two who watched it. The, the first group, not, not the second group. Um, they watched it legally. Let's be clear on that. They, they have HBO. And um, I'm pretty sure that they have HBO only to watch Game of Thrones. They, they love Game of Thrones. In fact, they love it so much that in anticipation of, seven, of season seven, they watched all six seasons, they rewatched all six seasons in the two months leading up to last Sunday night. Did anyone do that? I don't know. Just... If you don't know Game of Thrones, there, that means they watched 60 episodes, each of which is about an hour long. So that's 120 minutes, or sorry, 120 hours total they devoted to this show. I don't know about you, but I have a problem with that. Um, but in a way, like, we've all been there. We've all been there. How many of you uh, have ever binged watch shows? Maybe you're listening to um, me tell about my sister and her husband, and you're like, Psh, 
That's nothing. I watched that last week. Well, you're a, a special kind of person, but um, yeah, we, we all, I think we all do that if, we, if we're honest, or at, least, at least most of us, probably all of us. Um, and so my question is this, why do we do that? Why do we, why do we crave television shows? Um, you know, what is it about that that pulls us in? So, I think, um, I think there's a bunch of reasons. But I think story has a lot to do with it. You know, we live uh, lives, we live fragmented lives. It's hard, especially for us in, in very urban environments in big cities like Chicago, to feel a sense of belonging and community and shared history and um, greater purpose. And so we often uh, compete with, with different shows or with different, different groups that we can belong to. And I think it's, it's telling for us that for one hour, a su- for one Sunday night, 16.1 million people all come to the same place uh, wanting to share in a story, even if it's on different different screens. And so I think we crave these things because we crave good stories. And we crave to be part of a good story. And like most stories, um, like theater plays, stories are made up of characters, of dialogue, of settings, of plot points. And in the same way, we see that in the Bible. The Bible has its own uh, characters and settings and plot twists and resolution. And if we, if we look carefully enough, um, we see that this is true not just of individual stories in the Bible, but of the overarching story of the Bible. This story begins at Genesis, um, at creation, and it ends in Revelation, at the new creation. And if we think about it, where we are, where are we but in the middle of this story? And so, you know, stage actors, they perform their lines, always within the context of the bigger play. They, they always act out their lines in reference to the, the act, the specific act that they're currently in. And, um, and so, in the same way, we learn to perform our roles as actors on, this, on a stage by looking at the overarching story of what God has done, is doing, and ultimately will do in the chief pr- protagonist, Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to find our place within the story. And we need to act accordingly. And to do so, we need to look at each act, each plot movement, specifically creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so today we're starting a new series um, that, that focuses on the big story of the Bible and, and how we are to live um, within it, how we're to find our place within it. And so obviously we're starting at the beginning at creation. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. 
That's Genesis chapter 1. There's this theologian I like. His, his name's uh, Tom Wright, and he talks about four basic questions to any worldview that any worldview attempts to answer. Um, a worldview is, is just a way of understanding the world. It's, it's like a framework of beliefs about the world and how the world works. And so Tom Wright asks uh, four questions. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? And what is the solution? And every worldview and every person has answers to those questions. And so the important question for us then is, what, um, where are we getting our answers? What story are we living by? What story is guiding our lives? And those are questions that we're, we're hoping to answer through this series. So this morning we're looking at the first plot movement, creation. So what does this passage in Genesis 1 say to us this morning? I think it is, it is this. God creates all things to display his glory as, things, as all things live in glad allegiance to him. I'll say it again. God creates all things to display his glory as all things live in glad allegiance to him. So how can we possibly apply this passage of scripture to our lives in the 21st century? What does this passage have to tell us? And I pray the Spirit will apply this word to all of your lives in in unique ways. But I think the main call this passage has for us as believers is to find rest in the reign of Jesus. I'll say it again. Find rest in the reign of Jesus. And maybe you are wondering, where do we see Jesus in this passage? That seems odd coming out of Genesis. Um, but if you just wait, I, I, think, I think we'll see uh, how this passage points us to the rest that God provides in Jesus. So in order to see this, we first have to introduce the characters. That's, the, that's usually how stories go. When you read, um, when you read Hamlet, you see a, like a little um, list of, of character names and, and descriptions. And that's kind of what uh, we see here in, in Genesis. We are introduced to characters that will occupy the rest of this story. And, we'll to- and we're told uh, facts about them that should inform our thinking of who they are and, and what they do. And so we're first going to look at two main characters, and then we're going to look at how they were meant to be in relationship with one another. Okay, so let's look at this first character. Verse 1. In the beginning, God. God is the central character of the Bible. Everything begins with God and everything ends with God. But why should we pay attention? Who is this God? What does he do in the world? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we look at the rest of the creation account, one thing is abundantly clear. God rules his creation in power, authority, and grace. Maybe you're a a note taker. Uh, This is my first main point. God rules his creation in power, authority, and grace. And so to look at that, um, 
Let's look at each of these points. So first, God's power is incomprehensible. God creates the universe by the word of his power, by the the power of his word. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Ten times God speaks, and ten times something comes into being. God brings about, I don't know about you, God is the only uh, person I know who can speak things into being. And that's exactly what we see here. Um, Everything you see around you in this room, everything you have ever seen in your life, everything you will ever see, everything you will never get the chance to see, exists only by, only because God desired it and spoke it into being. God speaks and the world appears. And so when God speaks, uh, anything can happen. But God doesn't just create, God governs by the power of his word. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void, but God creates order from the chaos by bending creation um, to his word and establishing laws that govern creation. In, in verse 14 through 18, God places the, star, the sun, moon, and stars in the sky, and he appoints them as rulers of the day and of the night. He, he establishes laws that govern creation. So, ju- so just think about this. Okay, there is no galaxy, there is no planet, no asteroid that moves contrary to the word of our God. Everything, everything is governed by God's word and only by God's word. Mountains rose, valleys fell, lightning strikes, clouds form and then, and then pour out rain. Only by the word of God. God rules over every drop of rain, every snowflake, every grain of sand. But not just that, God sustains the universe by the power of his word. Think about that. Your life, your health, your family, your job security, your bank accounts, this building, this country, this planet, our sun, exists only because God upholds it by his word. He holds it in existence. And so if God were, were simply to, for just a split, split second, cease to do that, everything vanishes. We are temporary, uh, and God is eternal. God, we exist only by God's power and God's pleasure. Second, God's authority is uncontested. God names creation. So, so my name is Samuel Oscar Griffin. I didn't choose any of those names. My parents chose them for me. So in a, in a real sense, my parents, not me, determined who I, what I would be called for the rest of my life. They exercised authority over me, and God does the exact same thing in creation. God calls the light day. 
He calls the darkness night. He calls the ocean, uh, the waters ocean. He calls the sky. Um, he names the sky. God exercises his authority. And ultimately, God names us too. God game, names us man. God has the right to name his creation. He has the right to determine its identity and its meaning. I don't have that right. You don't have that right. God alone has the right to name creation. Not just that, God judges creation. Seven times this passage, uh, God looks at something he's made and gives his verdict on its value. Every time God looks at something he has made, he sees that it is good, it is beautiful, it is right. So God and God alone has the right to make that evaluation, not us. God determines what is good and what is not. God commissions his creation. He tells the, the, the animals to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He sends them on a mission. He commissions the stars and the sun and the moon to, to serve his uh, purpose. So again, this is only something that God can do. God alone dictates what creation is for and what it should do. So God's authority here is uncontested. He is the undisputed king of creation, and no one can challenge his reign. So let that just sink in. Our God is the Lord of all creation. No human ruler, whether in Beijing or Moscow or Damascus or Washington, D.C., has any claim to his throne. Peter Lightheart writes of God's rule. He says this, There is no corner of the globe, no edge of the universe where he is not king. Nothing is outside his rule, and we have nothing to fear. So God's uh, power is, is um, undisputed, is incomprehensible. God's authority is uncontested. And third, God's grace is abundant. God is totally sovereign, and yet his sovereignty is never divorced from his love. In all that God does, he seeks only what is best for his creation because it was itself an outflow of his love. God blesses his creation. God values his creation. So just, just think about the beauty and the, and the diversity that we see in God's creation. God could have made just a merely functioning, um, mechanistic universe with devoid of any beauty or variety. That's, but that's not what God does. God creates an overwhelming abundance of diversity through which God displays his glory. Okay, you with me? Here's an exercise. Try to think of every flower, every mountain, every desert, every galaxy, every forest, every ocean wave. God loves all of it, has a plan for all of it. Think of every starfish, every um, ladybug, every hummingbird, every hermit crab, every elephant, every dog. And yes, I mean every dog 
that goes from the beagle to the um, to to the Siberian Husky to the Jack Russell Terrier. Every dog, God loves every one of them. I grew up a Southern Baptist, and so I, I can't resist mentioning food here. Um, think about food. Think about every mango, every watermelon, every avocado, every cuisine on earth, every plate of chicken biryani or bibimbap or, and yes, every coffee bean. God, God loves all of it. Think about us. Every skin tone, every eye color, every hair type, every body size, every spoken language, every laugh, every sneeze. God loves everything because everything is his. And he sees it as good. In fact, God does all this to display his glory. God creates diversity for God to display the richness and beauty of God. God creates the ocean and thunderstorm to display his power and majesty. God creates the, the grass and the gentle breeze to uh, display his tenderness. God creates the seasons to demonstrate his faithfulness. God, dem- God creates the planetary systems to display his wisdom. All of creation is a theater of God's glory. And so we should be abundantly clear by now that he is in control and we should see that God rules his creation in power, authority, and grace. Okay, so that's, that's the first character. That is uh, the main character. So let's now look at the second character in this story. This is in, uh, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the field, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth of day. Okay, so God is the main character in this story. But we are supporting cast. Um, we definitely have a role in this story, but it's always in relation to God and his design for creation. So this means that our identity and purpose is determined by God, uh, for God. And in this passage, I think it's clear that our identity and purpose is in this, that God sends his image bearers into the world to extend his rule to all creation. I'll say that again. God sends his image bearers into the world to extend his rule to all creation. Okay, 
Verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what are so we are made in the image of God, but but what does that mean? There's a bunch of different views, but here's what I think. I think if you look at the context of this verse, you see that relationality is what constitutes um, what it is to be made in God's image and what it is to image God. So that describes both who we are and what we do as God's creatures. And I think we see this in three ways, which are all, which are all fundamentally relational. First, we are created in and for community. Notice how human origin begins in triune discourse. God speaks um, and, and says that we are to be uh, like him in some way. Now, there's, there's debate about who God is speaking to in verse 26, um, whether he's speaking to an angel or, or just speaking in a way that emphasizes his majesty. But I think um, in however the grammar, um, whatever the grammar shows us, I think that the point that we are made in God's image um, indicates that in some way we reflect who God is. And since we as Christians know and believe that God is fundamentally triune, I think this at least suggests that we ourselves in some way reflect God's triunity by virtue of being made in his image. So how do we reflect God's triunity? Let's be clear, there's a lot of dissimilarities here. Um, I don't want to overreach. But I think we reflect God's triunity at least by existing within human community. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Okay, and this is the part I love. This is where it gets interesting. Male and female, he created them. So God speaks of both male and female in the same sentence, in the same um, uh, way that he's speaking of humanity in general. And so what I think that suggests is that, um, that fundamental to our creation in God's image is the fact that God created us both male and female. We are defined in relation to one another. We share a unity uh, within plurality, just like uh, Trinitarian persons. So Michael Horton, he's a theologian, um, he has this to say. Whereas Darwinian evolutionary theory locates human origins in primordial violence, in the apparently meaningless lust for survival, the Bible locates human origins in peace, love, and justice. And I, I love this part. With difference as the prerequisite rather than the obstacle to covenantal relationships. Do you see what that means? With difference as the prerequisite to, rather, than the tr- rather than the obstacle to covenantal relationships. That means that we share in unity only because uh, we are different from one another. He goes on, um, there are not first autonomous individuals who then may or may not enter into covenantal relations. From the moment of conception, 
Each of us is already a participant in the web of human histories, relationships, genetics, and nurture that condition our personal identity. So what's the point? Ultimately, you are not your own. Biblically, there is no such thing as self-ownership. We live in a very individualistic culture. Um, We choose not to know our neighbors. We choose not to know the people we go to church with. We choose too often. We fixate on our own goals, our own concerns, our own needs. And we forget that this goes against the grain of what it means to be human. Uh, We choose to isolate ourselves from the lives and problems of others who don't look like us or who live in different parts of the world. But Genesis is clear. We were created in and for community. Second, we are created to rule under God's rule. In the ancient Near East, kings would often um, set up statues of themselves in their territories just to remind people of their authority and their power. And in a similar way, God creates us as living statues, as living representatives of his rule on earth. Look at verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens of the livestock and over all the earth. So central to, integral to our being made in God's image is our representing his rule on the earth. And so this means that we should care for creation, and this means that we should extend God's rule throughout all creation. Um, verse 28 is key. So God blesses them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. And so it's, it's so interesting that God speaks of filling the earth in the very same sentence that he speaks of subduing the earth. I think those two are, are coupled together. And what that means is that um, as creatures, we are to create order in the world where there is, is chaos. Um, the technical term is that Adam and Eve were to Edenize creation. They were to um, make all of creation as cultivated and as, as orderly as, as Eden. So that means that, that every engineer in this room, every accountant, every um, filmmaker, every barista, every doctor, every health inspector, all of you play a part in extending God's rule throughout all creation. Your work has meaning. Third, we are created to fill the earth with images of God. We are images of God, and we are told to fill the earth. And uh, we're told to fill the earth with, with people like us. And so I, I, think, I think you know where uh, we're going with this. If you skip ahead to Genesis 5, um, it says in verse 3, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So notice how uh, Adam's son is made in his likeness, in Adam's image, who is himself made in God's image. And so the immediate point is, uh, is this. We fill the earth with images of God by making babies. 
okay? I'll just leave it there. Um, no, I, I do want to say something, um, and I want to be really careful about how I say it. I'm single and uh, 24, and I don't have any kids, so I don't really know anything about life. So take this with a grain of, a grain of salt. Um, I know there's a lot of issues and complications and hurts surrounding um, the whole issue of kids and having kids and not having kids. Um, we'll see next week that we live in a fallen world and things are not the way they're supposed to be. But at the same time, we live in a very individualistic and materialistic culture. And if we're not careful, um, we can sometimes prioritize our personal achievements, our self-discovery, our, pers- our professional success, our material comforts above marriage and family. And so look, I, I really don't want to insert myself into your family life. Trust me, that is not a place I want to be. Um, but if we're commanded to be fruitful and multiply through family, through marriage and family, then we shouldn't take that lightly. Um, having a spouse and children is not an obstacle to your self-fulfillment. It is instead a means of displaying God's glory and of, of being fully human. So where does that, what does that mean for single people like me or for couples who can't have children? And I think this is, where, this is one place where the gospel redefines what it means to be fully human. Um, in Old Testament Israel, to not have children was, was a curse. It was, um, it was a curse for a number of reasons, but partly because you couldn't fulfill this mandate. You couldn't live out, you couldn't live in obedience to, um, to God's mandate here. But now in Jesus, all believers can extend God's rule throughout, all, throughout creation and can fill the earth with images of God, primarily by sharing the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The fact is that um, 4.3 billion people on the planet don't give God the glory he deserves. Uh, they don't know him as their creator or as their Lord. Over 2 billion people, 2 billion people, I will never in my life, I, I'll live my entire life and never meet to anywhere close to 2 billion people. Over 2 billion people, men, women, children, just like you and me, um, last year have never heard the gospel. They've never heard the good news of the God who sent his son into the world um, to save them from their sin. If you think about it, um, a year later, they still haven't heard. When, when is that going to change? I know, I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. But remember, God creates all things to display his glory. And, and that will only happen as we extend God's rule throughout all creation by preaching the gospel. As we fill creation with disciples who are made and are progressively being made 
into the image of Jesus Christ. So let's not lose sight of this. Let's push forward with this. Because it's not just our obedience to this command that is at stake. It's the recognition and celebration of God's glory among all peoples in all languages. But how do we live in this way? How do we live in a community in a way that displays God's grace? How do we steward creation in a way that displays God's authority? How do we fill the earth with images of God in a way that displays God's glory? And I think it's important for us to realize here that we can do nothing apart from God's Spirit. So for us to live in this way, we must enter into the rest God provides, ultimately in Jesus Christ. And if you look in in chapter 2, starting in verse 3, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this might take some some explanation, but it's here that we see how the two main characters uh, were meant to be in relationship with one another. And from this passage, we see that God calls his people to enter into the rest he provides. God calls his people to enter into the rest he provides. Um, Kyle Butson preached a sermon about the Sabbath last year during the series through the Ten Commandments. I, I highly recommend you, you check it out on the church website. I'm, I'm basically stealing everything from him. Um, he gave a, a great overview, and there's basically two main passages about the, uh, about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. There's one in Exodus 19, and then there's one in Deuteronomy 5. So let's spend a little time looking at, at, at both. Um, so if you, if you go over to Exodus 19, um, it's basically in four parts. There's, there's, a, um, there's the command to observe the Sabbath. There's the reason to command, um, for the command to, to make it holy. There is, um, there's the way that they're supposed to do this by, by, um, by, by working on six days and then resting on the seventh. And then there's the why. There's the reason for all of this. And this is in, in chapter 20, um, verse 11. It says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God uh, grounds the Sabbath commandment in the pattern that he set for his people in creation. Um, so we shouldn't think of God as resting as though he was really tired, but, but resting in the sense that he was completed with his work. He was done with it. And so when, God's, when God establishes the Sabbath, He's describing the type of relationship he had with his creation. God was satisfied in it, and that includes us as well. So, so the Sabbath in Exodus points Israel back to the perfectly harmonious relationship that she enjoyed with, uh, that she once enjoyed with her creator. So 
Unfortunately, it doesn't, it doesn't stay that way. And when you go over to Deuteronomy 5, um, you see a, a similar command to keep the Sabbath, but it's grounded in a different reason. And this time, it is... Um, this time, it's grounded in God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched, outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So, you notice the difference? Um, whereas one was grounded in creation, pointing back to the harmonious relationship God's people once enjoyed with, with God the Creator, this one is, is pointing forward to the redemption that God makes on behalf of his people, ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's, a, that's an important point um, because it means that, that what the Sabbath ultimately points us towards is, is Jesus himself. And so that's, that's in Genesis chap, chapter 2. Uh, it speaks of the rest of the relationship that is restored in Christ. So Jesus has established a new covenant where anyone who repents and believes enters into continual and eternal state of rest in God, into a perfectly harmonious relationship with God. And this is what we were made for, to live with God in perfect harmony, in never-ending gladness, in continual praise. This is why God has created us. So as we live this story, may we live in recognition of God's universal and eternal reign. May we live as image bearers who extend God's rule to all peoples of the earth. And may we find our Sabbath rest in the reign of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your beauty and authority and power and, and, and grace. Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and conform us to the image of your son. Apply your word to our lives as we go out from here and help us to live for you through all our days. Father, we ask that you would glorify your name in our lives in this church so that all peoples of the earth might be glad in you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.